You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Let's turn together to the Word of God, to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. A well-known miser was once called upon by the chairman of a well-known community charity. The fundraiser said, Sir, our records show that despite your incredible wealth, you have never once given to our drive. The tightwad exploded. He said, Have your records shown that I have an elderly mother who was left penniless when my father died? Do your records show that I have a brother who was wounded in the war and is unable to work? Do your records show that I have a widowed sister with small children and they can barely make ends meet? No, sir, answered the embarrassed volunteer. I'm afraid our records don't show those things. To which the miser replied, well then, I don't give to any of them, so why should I give to you? (laughs) It's true. It's true. We don't often like to talk about giving, do we? The topic of giving is generally the least favorite of most preachers to preach, and generally it's the least favorite of most congregations to hear, so in that way we're even. But it shouldn't be that way, friends. It should not be that way. There are several reasons why pastors don't like to preach on giving. Several reasons. First of all, we don't want to be lumped in with those who overemphasize the issue. This is just, after all, one issue of many, and there are those out there with the unnatural ability to somehow turn every message, it doesn't matter what the passage is about, into a message on giving. And we certainly don't want to be lumped in with those folks. Likewise, some pastors will refuse to preach on it because they don't understand it. There's just a a general lack of knowledge concerning this topic. They see the church's giving as man's charity to support them and to support their livelihood instead of God's reallocation of resources and blessing for the work of the ministry. Third, some preachers, believe it or not, avoid this topic out of pride. Out of pride so that when they go to pastor's conferences or touch base with other pastors and ministry friends over the phone, they want to be able to say things like, oh yeah, I never have to mention money at my church. I never have to bring it up. Our people are wonderful. They're such generous givers. So they avoid this topic in order to exchange the the right to, to brag about how generous their people are as a reflection of their ministry. There are all sorts of reasons for pastors to avoid this topic. But I think the primary reason that most pastors shy away from it is because of fear. Because of fear. They are afraid that the people that they love and care for so deeply that those people will misunderstand their motives. So let me just clear the air this morning by saying that I personally am excited to talk about giving this morning. I'm excited to talk about it. Not because anyone here needs the money. I'm not looking for a raise. We have a business meeting coming up soon. I am not gonna stand up and say, all right, who wants to give to put my next little girl into school? That's not gonna happen. I'm not looking for a raise. The church has taken care of my needs, and I can say with Paul, as we're about to see in this passage, I can say with him that I am well supplied. 
Likewise, Christ has taken care of his church, and I believe he will continue to do so. So please, don't misunderstand my motives. I'm excited to preach on giving because the more that I have studied this topic in the weeks leading up to this sermon, the more thrilled I have become to share it with you. Because there is a big difference between charity and giving. A big difference. Charity involves the exchange of resources for the warm feeling of helping somebody else out, of doing something good and knocking a little bit off of your taxes each year. That's not what we're looking at today. Giving is worship. It's worship. It's a duty that delights the soul. It's a gift that guarantees blessing. And it's a, it's a partnership that proclaims the word of God. Giving is worship. That's why every time that we come together, we sing, we read, we pray, we preach, and we give. So, with that in mind, Let's turn our attention to the next set of verses as we come to the beginning of the end of this joyful little letter to the Philippians. We'll examine verses 14 through 19, but for the sake of context and light review, we'll begin by reading in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you, to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Amy Carmichael once said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. As we've explored this letter to the Philippians, Paul has continually revealed his heart for them while expressing genuine care for the condition of their hearts. He wants to see their church grow in gospel impact. He addresses their witness, their unity, and their growth in Christ. But rather than give them a program or a plan or a to-do list or, or a set of objectives to succeed in ministry, instead, he gives them something so much better than that. So much better. He gives them the mind of Christ. He keeps referring to it over and over and over again throughout this letter. He tells them how to think and how to act like Jesus. 
knowing that everything else will work itself out so long as the church keeps being conformed more and more and more into the likeness of Christ. Paul knew their love for Christ and their love for him was the real deal. He knew it was genuine because they expressed their love through their giving. Before we dive into these verses, let's turn for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In chapters 8, 9, and 11 of this letter, Paul uses the Macedonians or the Philippians as an example of a giving church. Look at chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 1. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, that is, the Philippians. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. There is a lot there in that passage that I would love to unpack this morning. But I kept you really late last week. And I promised myself I wouldn't do that to you again this week. So we'll just highlight a few things. In verse 2, we're told that the Philippians were an afflicted church and that they were extremely poor. And they had bad circumstances and plenty of room to complain. They also had plenty of reasons to justify not giving. I mean, that's what we all do when hard times befall us. It's easy to just say that, that God will surely understand. If the choice is between giving and eating, surely he understands and he wouldn't want me to starve, would he? When times are tough and you find yourself in extreme poverty, it's easy to say, let someone else give. I can't afford to right now. But verse 2 also tells us that they had an abundance of joy and they had a wealth of generosity. They had discovered the secret, the joy of giving. It has been well said that the happiest people on earth are the people who have discovered this joy of giving. In verse 3, we're told that they gave according to their means and even beyond their means. And they did it because they wanted to. It was of their own initiative, of their own accord. The Philippians went above and beyond what anyone would expect a poor, afflicted, poverty-stricken church to do. In verse 4, we're told that they earnestly begged for the favor, the privilege of giving to other believers. And then in verse 5, we, we see the shocking truth of what drove them, what, what was behind their actions. He says they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You see, giving is simply the natural result of giving yourself first to the Lord. When you truly give your life to Christ, you realize that everything that you have doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to him. You're just a steward watching over it. You realize that it's not yours, it's his. And it's no big deal for you to give it away because you understand the truth. You know that it doesn't truly belong to you. It's clear 
the Philippian church was a giving church. They, they didn't have much, but they were joyful, generous, purposeful, intentional, humble, and worshipful in their giving. In other words, they were sacrificial givers. And Paul held them up as an example for other churches to look at. He said, look, I will brag about the Thessalonians over here because they are the model church. They are a wonderful church for bearing up under trial and pain and, and affliction and persecution. Look to the Thessalonians. But if I had a church to point to forgiving, I would point to the Philippians. I would hold them up because this is a church full of sacrificial givers. Now let's go back to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. And I'll give you one more consideration as we enter this text. The Bible has a lot to say about giving and finances. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you put all those together, one out of every six verses deal with money in one form or another. Of the 29 parables Christ told, 16 deal with the person and his money. So it's not like the New Testament tucks this issue away or, or buries it down beneath the cushion somewhere. So please don't expect, and I hope you don't this morning, a robust, comprehensive theology of giving. If you're looking for that, I'm sorry, we might as well just set our watches and order lunch now, because it's going to be a long day. Scripture says a lot about it, and time won't allow us that luxury, so there's just too much there. But we can and should focus on what Philippians 4 has to say regarding this issue. Paul doesn't need to unpack the importance of cheerful, individual, regular, sacrificial giving and why it's so important for that money to be funneled through the church. He doesn't have to talk about those things in this passage to the Philippians because as we have already seen, the Philippians were already living that good theology life regarding their giving. So we'll focus on the primary aspect of this particular passage and that is the blessing or the gift of giving. You see, when we give, everyone gets blessed. In verses 14 and 15, we see that the receiver is blessed by it. In verses 16 and 17, we see that the giver is blessed by it. And in verse 18, we see that God is blessed by it. And all throughout the text, Paul provides supporting facts to help us put these blessings into a proper frame of thought, to help align our perspective so we don't go too far to the left or too far to the right, but that we think about giving sacrificially, faithfully, appropriately. So I've divided this paragraph into four headings or principles of faithful giving. These are four truths about giving that will encourage us on towards greater faithfulness and shape us into the sort of givers that God wants us to be. If we can pick up what Paul is putting down in this passage, we will have every reason in the world to pursue this blessing and then be a blessing to others. So what is the first principle, our first heading? Well, for starters, Paul stresses the partnership of faithful giving. The partnership of faithful giving. Verses 14 and 15 are dripping with gratitude for the hearts of the givers. He doesn't even mention the gift itself. Instead, he thanks them for their love and their support. That word partnership in verse 15 is the word koinonia. We've seen it a number of times throughout this letter already. But here, Paul says that when we give to those who are in ministry, 
those who are doing the work of the ministry, we are in fact entering into a partnership with them. It is as though the Philippians were there with Paul, tilling the ground, planting the seeds, and reaping the harvest along with him. They were companions and co-workers with Paul in the work of the ministry. They could be hundreds and hundreds of miles away, separated by time and space, but they are still with him. They are partnering with him in his work of the ministry. And their partnership had two profound impacts on Paul and his work in the ministry. And the same is true for everyone who has entered into a partnership of gospel ministry and giving and receiving today. A gospel partnership leaves a profound impact. And the first effect that we see here in this passage is found in verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It was kind of you to share my trouble. Here we see that sacrificial giving is relieving. It's relieving. It's a huge relief to those who are on the front lines of ministry. For missionaries, evangelists, pastors, counselors, and anyone who is up to here in the work. It's a relief to know that you have partners who will share your trouble as you share the good news. That phrase, it was kind of you. It was kind of you. It literally translates, you did good. You did good. That's literally what it says. It doesn't sound right in English, but it works in Greek. He's saying, you did good when you sent me that gift because it reminded me that I'm not in this thing alone. It helped me in my trouble. You knew I was in trouble, and you took it upon yourself to share in my burden. And that's exactly how each and every one of us should look at our partnership with those in ministry. We need to remember that ministry is tough. It's not easy. It's hard. And the church is designed in such a way that we all need to partner together if we are going to make a difference. We cannot just expect someone else to go out and to do the work over there. We can't. We can't think like that. Instead, we have to partner together. We need to be in this together. We need to work as one. As we've seen all throughout this book, we need to be of one mind, one heart, and one love, and of one accord. We need to come together as the blood-bought body of Christ in order to bring the message, the good news of Christ to a dying world. We need to do this together in partnership. Financial giving is just one of several concrete expressions we have for sharing in each other's trouble. But it's a big one. And when we are faithful in this area, we bring a sense of relief to the hard work of the ministry. But it does more for the receiver than that. Sacrificial giving is also refreshing. It's refreshing. And by that, I mean that it's a breath of fresh air. Sadly, it's uncommon. We don't see it very often. It was rare back in Paul's day, and it's somewhat rare today. It's, it's rare, and it's precious when it comes. Look at verse 15. He adds, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Except you only. They were the only ones. It's hard to believe that the Philippians were there at the beginning. And for a while, they were the only ones partnering with Paul in this ministry of giving and receiving. 
It's hard to believe. That expression, giving and receiving, it refers to monetary transactions on both sides of the ledger. But in the ancient world, this expression meant so much more. It was also commonly used over and over again to refer to the give and take of a valued friendship. He's saying there is a a mutual benefit to our relationship, a benefit that should be there with all the churches, but you are the only ones, the only ones, Philippians, who have partnered with me in this way. Sacrificial givers are rare and refreshing in the life of the church. And that leads to our second heading, the purposefulness of faithful giving. The purposefulness of faithful giving giving. Verse 16 gives us a little more insight into the Philippians' heart. Paul says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Once and again. In other words, sacrificial giving is constant. It's constant. It's not a one and done sort of deal. Unlike the Christian faith, it is not once for all delivered to the saints. It happens once and again and again and again. That's why we regularly and purposefully give every time we come together on a Sunday morning. Turn with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16. We looked at the other Corinthian letter just a few minutes ago. Let's see what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 1. He says... Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. These verses provide a window into Paul's ministry of giving and receiving. In verse 1, we see that there was a collection for the saints and that this was a regular thing for the churches to do. This is what Paul taught to the churches in Galatia. And the Corinthians were to fall in line. He expected them to do likewise because this was the norm. He says, this is the rule. This is what I preach to all of the churches. And Corinthians, you are no exception. In verse 2, they were instructed to put something aside on the first day of every week. He says, each of you, each of you, making this a universal command, every Christian is supposed to do this, to put something aside and to do so regularly on the first day of the week. That expression, put something aside and store it up. Store it up, that's the the verb form of the word chest or storehouse or trunk. It's a place where money and valuables would be kept, suggesting that The New Testament church of the first century had a similar chest or treasury where offerings would be kept. And then at the end of the verse, he says that he doesn't want to take a special offering when he visits. He doesn't want to collect a a unique gift, a love offering when he comes. Instead, the idea is that their giving should be consistent and constant and weekly enough, and it it should be enough that they wouldn't have to go above and beyond or do something special when he comes. This is what Paul taught as he went from church to church, and we still follow this practice today. We do, not just to avoid special offerings, but to remain faithful and constant in our giving. Back to Philippians. 
Look at Paul's response to their constant giving. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And notice the tone and the tenor of Paul's acceptance. Here we see that sacrificial giving is charitable. It's charitable. It always seeks to benefit others. The Philippians, they go out of their way to bless Paul. And then Paul in return goes out of his way to say, I just want to see you blessed. I just want to see you receive a blessing for your giving. He's not wrapped up in the physical blessing of the gift itself. Instead, he says, no, I'm just happy to see you be obedient to the call of God. I am so happy and it thrills my heart to see you walk in obedience even in a difficult thing like like giving in your poverty when you are stricken with affliction and yet you are being faithful and generous and you are giving above and beyond what you even are, are capable of doing. Somehow, by the Spirit of God, He has blessed you and continues to bless you in such a way that you continue to give and be used by Him. He's not wrapped up in the physical blessing of the gift. Instead, He's consumed with the spiritual benefit that they will receive. Dennis Johnson writes, what thrills Paul about the Philippians' gift is not what it does for him, but what it does for his friends in Philippi. Compared to their thriving in the grace of Christ, the money itself does not really matter one way or the other, except as a means of ministry that frees Paul to offer God's free grace to others free of charge. God's Spirit has so radically realigned Paul's desires and delights, freeing him from self-centeredness, that he counts his brothers and sisters themselves as his most treasured dividend. So they were thinking about Paul, and Paul was thinking about them. But what exactly is this spiritual fruit that increases to a person's credit? What is that? What does it look like, spiritual fruit that increases to a person's credit? Let's back up for a moment to the book of Proverbs, the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs. Let's look at chapter 11, Proverbs 11. This ancient book of wisdom is a good place to turn to for answers. So we'll look at a few verses here and there. Proverbs 11. Look at verses 24 and 25. We're told, One who gives freely, yet grows, and, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers once. So in God's economy, sometimes he reverses, he flips the narrative of what we would expect him to do, of what's natural in life. I mean, normally it's calories in, calories out, right? It's how much do you have to give, how much can you hold on to, and trying to be wise with that. This proverb tells us that one man gives freely, and yet he grows richer. Another man withholds what he should give And instead, he only gets poorer. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. What a promise. Skip over to chapter 19. Chapter 19 of Proverbs. And look at verse 17. Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. He's lending to the Lord, and he will repay him 
for his deed. That is an excellent verse to underline in your Bible. Think about that. You are allowing the God of the universe to essentially borrow from you. You are lending what you have, what he has given to you, back to him. And what is the promise? What is the result that we see here in this verse? We see that God will repay you for your deed. The principle of these verses that we've just looked at is simply this. God will never stay in debt to anyone. God will never stay in debt to anyone. He will always bless those who are generous. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that you can demand how God repays you. That's one of the many problems with the prosperity gospel. They say that if you sow $20 in faith today, God will bless you with $200 tomorrow. That's ridiculous. You can't support that scripturally because God always repays his way and his timing. But the scriptures do say that God will never stay in debt to anyone. To anyone. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 so that we can see this principle still at work here in the New Testament. Explained and unpacked even more. To 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9. This principle of God's relationship to giving, it's found all throughout the Bible, but it is just so clearly articulated and spelled out here in this chapter. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. The point is this. Don't you love that? For Paul to just say, here's the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. We've heard it said time and time again. Over and over again, we've heard it said, you can't outgive God, right? And that's so true. But it's only true because God has promised in his word that he would never stay in debt to anyone. He will always outbless the giver because God loves it when people give generously with a right heart. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians 4, he provides fruit that increases to your credit. Friend, every time you give, God has promised to bless you. Think about that. He's promised to bless you. You may not get what you want, or what you think you need. But your heavenly Father who loves you and gives good things to his children, 
He has promised that he will take what you give him and he will increase it to your credit. He always pays his debts and his gifts are always better than ours. So faithful giving, it needs to be constant. It needs to be consistent. And it also needs to be charitable. It needs to look to others. It needs to look upward to Christ. It needs to be purposeful. That's number two. We've seen the partnership and the purposefulness. Next, we have the profit of faithful giving. The profit of faithful giving. It goes without saying that sacrificial giving is gainful. It's gainful. We just saw how gainful giving is for the giver in verse 17. But what about the receiver? What about the one who receives the gift? Look at verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. While Paul is more concerned about how giving blesses them, he is grateful and he recognizes that their giving benefits everyone. Everyone gets blessed by it. And this too is a work of the Lord. Because God alone knows what our needs really are and what it will take for there to be full payment and more. God alone knows. We may think we know, but God knows. It reminds me of a story of four brothers who left home for college. They went on to become successful doctors and lawyers. Well, some years later, they came together for a fine dinner, and they decided it was time to let their mother know just how much they appreciated her. By now, she was quite elderly. She lived far away in another city. So before they left, they promised to do something nice for mom in the coming year. The year passed, and they met for dinner again to share their acts of love. The first brother said, I had a big house built for mama. The second said, I had a $100,000 theater built into the house. The third said, I had my Mercedes dealer deliver an SL600 to her door. And after all that, the fourth finally spoke. He said, you know how mama loved reading the Bible and how she can't read anymore because she can't see very well? I met this preacher who told me about a parrot who can recite the entire Bible. It took 20 preachers, 12 years to teach him. I had to pledge to contribute $100,000 a year for 20 years to the church. But brothers, it was worth it. All mama has to do is name the chapter and verse and the parrot will recite it. The other brothers were impressed. Shortly afterwards, their mother sent out their thank you notes. She wrote, Milton, the house that you built is so beautiful. And it's so huge. I live in only one room and I still have to clean the whole house though. Thank you anyway. Marvin, I am too old to travel. I stay home. I, I have my groceries delivered so I never use the Mercedes. The thought was good though. Thanks. Michael, you gave me an expensive theater with Dolby sound and all the bells and whistles. It holds 50 people, but I'm old and all my friends are dead. I've lost my hearing, and I'm nearly blind. I'll never use it. Thank you for the gesture just the same. And then finally, she wrote, My dearest Melvin, you were the only son to have the good sense to give a little thought to your gift. The chicken was delicious. <laughs> Thank you. 
You see, we might think that we know what other people need. We might think that we know what we need. But the truth of the matter is we're clueless. We have no idea, do we? We don't know. In the end, God knows, though. God knows what's best, and God delivers what's best. It's because of him that our giving produces any gain at all. Any gain. That is the profit of faithful giving. But it doesn't stop there. Sacrificial giving is not only gainful, it's also glorifying. It's glorifying. Look at the rest of the verse. He says, it is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Ultimately, we give to glorify God. Paul says it is as if the gift itself carried such a sweet aroma that when Epaphroditus handed the gift to Paul, a fragrant smell emanated from it, and and it made its way through the heavens to the very throne room of God himself. And as God breathed it in, it was a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice of worship. That is how Paul describes their gift. Like I said at the very beginning, giving is worship. It's worship. And that flows perfectly into our final heading. We have seen the partnership, the purposefulness, and the profit of faithful giving. Finally, we have the promise. The promise of faithful giving. Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a verse. This is a promise that my God will supply. But notice that little conjunction at the beginning of the verse. Don't skip that. Don't block it out in your memory. What is that first word we see? It's the word and. And. That conjunction joins this incredible promise with the partnership, the purposefulness, and the profit of faithful giving found in the previous verses. Without the former, you don't have the latter. But when the previous verses ring true, the promise of verse 19 is mind-blowing. I want to point out at least three takeaways from this verse, three parts to the promise that take the gift of giving to a whole new level. To begin with, notice that when we give faithfully, sacrificially, I want you to notice that we receive the ultimate surety. The ultimate surety. He says, and my God will supply. You can count on it. This is a certainty. Your needs will be met. It will happen. Why? Because of the source. Paul says, my God will be the one who does this for you. The same God who owns the cattle of a thousand hills will supply your every need. The same God who created the world and everything in the world will supply your every need. That's what he says here in this text, point blank. This God of limitless resources, matchless skill, and infinite power is the only one who provides for his church. It's true. God providentially works through the generosity of his people. But everything a person has, everything that a person has been given, has been given to them by God in the first place. He is the one who has given us all the resources we need, the abilities we have, and the desire to bless others. 
So ultimately, God is the one who supplies for the needs of his people through their generosity. And God does this because he wants to. He wants to. It's in his nature to provide for his children because he loves them. Those of you who have children, think about them. Think about the love that you have for them, how it it sometimes just aches into your chest, especially when you see them make unwise choices, when they wander off the reservation or they do something that is harmful to themselves and others. That's the love that God has for you multiplied by infinity. He wants to provide good things for his children. It's in his nature. Back in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus highlighted the generosity of our earthly fathers to show us by way of contrast just how much more our heavenly father wants to give good things to his children. In Matthew 7 verse 9, he asked, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Hopefully none of them. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It's a rhetorical question. We all know the answer. Our good God and Father will give good gifts to his children, and he will determine what they look like. He will decide what they are, not us. Again, we don't get to decide. We don't get to tell God. We don't get to demand anything from him in our giving. We don't get to say, God, I'm giving you 20. Give me 200 back. We don't get to say, Lord, you know my needs. I'm giving you this in order for you to meet fill in the blank. We don't get to do that. That's not our place. That's unscriptural. We don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Instead, what do we see? We see benevolent giving, generous giving, liberal giving, continual giving by God's people with a right heart to bless the Lord, to honor him, to worship and glorify him. And as a result, what are we promised? That God will not remain in debt to anyone, that he will fulfill our needs, that he will give us exactly what we need, and he knows better than we do what those things are. So we can trust him and believe in him that whatever he shovels our way as a result of our giving, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be better than anything that we give him. Jesus promises it. Paul affirms it. And God will do it. He doesn't say, and my God might supply some of your needs. Or my God probably will supply No, this is a promise. It's full of certainty and assurance. If you give to the Lord, he will do this. Psalm 34, verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So it's our responsibility to fear the Lord and to seek the Lord but then it's God's responsibility to provide for those who do so. Psalm 37, 25. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Psalm 84, 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Listen, this is the heart of God. When you give him your heart, when you give your heart to the Lord, he gives you the promise that you will be taken care of. You can count on it. We receive the ultimate surety. Next, we receive the ultimate sufficiency. The ultimate sufficiency, knowing that God is more than sufficient to provide for his people. Paul says that his God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. According to his riches. That first verb, will supply, it literally means to fill to the full. To fill to the full. So whatever need the church might have, God will meet that need all the way. He will fill that need to the full. Not halfway or most of the way, but all the way to the top. God will fill to the full every need. And our needs will never be too deep for God to fill. They will never be too much for him to handle. Notice the next phrase. He says, he will supply every need of yours. Not some of your needs, not a few of your needs, not most of your basic needs, but every need, as in all of them, all of your needs. Not our greeds, but our needs. Not our wants, our hopes and dreams of rising to the top, but every need that we have and every good gift our Father has for us, we will get it. Because our God loves to bless his children. And he loves to go exceedingly above and beyond all that we could ask or think. He is more than sufficient. More than sufficient. But look at what he says next. He says, according to his riches. According to his riches. That preposition, according to, it's so important because it gives us a baseline of what to expect from God. He doesn't say, out of his riches. He doesn't say from his riches or even in keeping with his riches. Instead, he says according to or in proportion to his riches. If a millionaire were to give you $20, he would not be giving according to his riches. He would be giving out of his riches. Why? Because what's $20 to a millionaire? It's nothing. He's not giving according to his riches. He's giving out of his riches, not in proportion to them. Because 20 bucks is nothing. Paul is saying the same thing about God. He doesn't simply give out of his riches. He gives according to or in proportion to his riches. In other words, he gives generously. He gives liberally and he gives continually. And he does so according to his riches. The word here for riches, it means an abundance of wealth. And it's more than enough of a good thing. It's above and beyond. It's more. It's everything. The God who owns it all will supply it all in proportion to all that he has, which is everything that there is. That's the ultimate sufficiency preceding the ultimate surety that God will faithfully give to those who give faithfully. And finally, he finishes the section saying that We receive the ultimate security. The ultimate security. Where are these riches located? Where are they stored? Where are they kept? He says, in glory, in Christ Jesus. In glory, in Christ. The first phrase, in glory, tells us the location. 
that these riches are located in heaven. The Bible often refers to heaven as glory because it is a place where God's glory is most manifest. So Paul is saying that these riches are so safe that they are being stored in heaven for God to abundantly distribute as he wills. Church, glory is a good place for God to store his riches. I am so glad that they are there with him in glory and not tucked away somewhere here on earth. We're told that thieves can't break into it. We're told that moths and parasites can't touch it, that rust and decay won't ever be a problem. There are no recessions in glory, no inflations in glory, no depressions in glory. The vaults of heaven are abundantly supplied, and they are absolutely secured. And finally, we have that last prepositional phrase, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. This tells us the mediator. He is the distributor of these riches to the church. In glory refers to the address. In Christ Jesus refers to the administrator. By saying that these riches are in Christ, Paul is saying that these riches are under his control. He has complete control over them. He is free to distribute them generously within his church however he wants. As the head of the church, he has every right to bless the church and to meet her needs. That's good news. Good news for us. For those of us who are of the household of faith, who have placed their faith and trust in this Christ as great sinners in need of a great Savior, this is good news for the redeemed. You put it all together and you have this promise that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Well, a few years ago, the government of India declared that all 501,000 rupee banknotes were to be null and void effective four hours from the time of the announcement. If that were to happen here, it would be the equivalent of being told that in four hours, every 10 and $20 bill in your wallet was going to be worthless. Sometime this afternoon, you might as well throw them away because they, they're meaningless. Let's say that you're one of the lucky ones who hears that announcement as soon as it's made. What would you do in the next few hours with those soon-to-be-worthless bills? You'd probably do exactly what they did in India. You'd do everything you possibly could to turn them into a currency that would last. And that's exactly how we should look at the resources of the Christian life. Friend, you can't take it with you. And as many have said, you can send it on ahead, though. You can. And just like those merchants in India frantically exchanging soon-to-be-worthless currency, you can exchange this world's wealth for real riches, for greater treasure that will last. Because, friend, what you do with your money today, it will make an impact on your life. We've seen the blessing that it provides for the giver. But it also blesses the receiver. And it also blesses the Lord the one who came to earth and died in the place of your sins, the one who took the penalty of your sins upon himself on the cross so that by simply receiving that free gift, by believing in him, who he is and what he has done, you too could have eternal life in his name. Friends, let me encourage you. The next time you just don't feel like giving, 
or you're tempted to think, I can't afford to obey God in this area. Not now. Don't forget the Philippians example. Don't forget the partnership, the purposefulness, the profit, and the promise of faithful giving. And remember, when you give, it's worship, and it blesses everyone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this promise that you will supply our needs, that you will take care of us, that you hold the redeemed in the palm of your hand, that you will never let go of us. Lord, that, that you will not remain in debt to anyone, that anyone who gives, it is as though they are lending to you. What a, what a reality. What, a, what an incredible truth. Lord, I pray that we would never forget that. I pray that we would not be a blessing to be blessed, but that we would enjoy the blessings that come from being a blessing to others. Lord, that we would be sacrificial givers, that we would be a relief to those who are serving, that we would be those refreshing few who put feet to this command, who work hard at giving, that we would be constant in our giving, even when we are poverty-stricken, even when it is hard, that we would see your hand of blessing work in our hearts and in our lives as we are faithful and obedient. Lord, I pray that we would be charitable in our giving, that we would think of others, that we would put others first, that we would not be consumed with the gifts that we receive, but, but the blessing that others will receive in giving those gifts. Lord, thank you for the gainfulness of it all and thank you for the glorifying aspect of this, that it is worship. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that when we would be tempted to say no, that we would step out in faith and honor you and worship you in obedience in the way that you would have us do. Lord, we love you. We thank you again for these great promises, for the great gift that you have given us through your son. We love you. And we praise you for it all. In your name, amen.